Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And once again, we are happy to catch up with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. There's never, never a shortage of interesting things <laughs> to talk about, Colonel. And it sounds like you've got some doozies for us today. Well, we really do, Brad. Looking at the Constitution, of course, it is always relevant and affects the way we live on a daily basis. Every time you pick up a newspaper or watch television, you think of freedom of the press. Every time you tell somebody what you think, freedom of speech, when you go to church, freedom of religion. If you ever have to go to court, which hopefully you never will have to, but if you do, then all the various protections of the Bill of Rights clearly apply to you there. So day after day, we are living in a system that is affected by our Constitution. I really like those introductory words by Ronald Reagan when he says that ours is a system of government in which the people tell the government what it can do. Most people tend to think the government tells people what they can and can't do, but our system is the opposite. We have delegated through the Constitution certain limited powers to the federal government. The federal government has those powers and only those powers. And unless some federal official can point to a provision of the Constitution that either expressly or impliedly authorizes him to take an action, he doesn't have the power to take that action. And just to make sure that nobody had any doubts about this, the framers put it in concrete in the 10th Amendment where they said the power is not delegated by this Constitution to the United States, that is to the federal government, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And so we look to the Constitution for the basic structure of our government, what powers it delegates, what powers it reserves to the states or to the people. And we also look day to day to cases that involve constitutional principles. Just a couple of days ago, we had a decision by a U.S. District Court judge in Texas, Judge Fred, and I'm not sure if he pronounces his last name Byery or Beery, B-I-E-R-Y. But anyway, this judge simply said that the proposal to allow illegal aliens to vote is absolutely unconstitutional, illegal, and absolutely ridiculous. He went back to the Constitutional Convention, and he quoted from Ben Franklin, and you recall that as Ben Franklin and the other delegates were leaving the convention on September 17th after having signed the Constitution, someone asked him, what sort of government have you given us, Dr. Franklin, a republic or a monarchy? And he answered, a republic, if you can keep it. And that's been our challenge for the last 200 plus years, keeping the republic that the framers gave us their at that constitutional convention. Well, one of the issues that always comes up in regard to the Constitution concerns what about amendments to the Constitution? Should we ever amend it? Well, George Washington seemed to think that an amendment sometimes was appropriate. 
And he said in his farewell address that if in any particular the distribution or modification of the constitutional powers be in any particular wrong, let it be corrected by an amendment in the way the Constitution designates. And he went on to say, but let there be no change by usurpation. Though in one instance, this may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. In other words, Washington is saying, it's okay to amend the Constitution occasionally. You know, we delegates were not infallible. We could have made mistakes. And there could be changing circumstances that might require amendments as well. But that's why we included Article 5, a provision by which the Constitution can be amended. And it is better to do that than to have change by usurpation, which I'm afraid is what the court has been doing all too often in recent years. What they've been doing with this living Constitution approach is modifying the Constitution, not by amending it, but by stretching it beyond recognition, putting new meanings into it that the framers never intended. Who would have thought, for example, that the framers of the Constitution in 1787, or even the framers of the 14th Amendment in 1868, would have ever thought that the term liberty would include same-sex marriage? And yet, just as Kennedy and his majority 5-4 opinion in the Bobergefell decision, by which the court said that same-sex marriage is a constitutional right, just as Kennedy, in that opinion, took that term liberty in the 14th Amendment and said that the framers had not given it a clear definition, rather, he said, they left that to succeeding generations. Justice Scalia in his dissenting opinion, simply said that when Justice Kennedy says succeeding generations, what he really means is succeeding generations of unelected federal judges. Because the people don't make those decisions to change the Constitution. Judges do simply by reading into the Constitution meanings that were never there to begin with and that the framers would never have imagined and that they would have been horrified to think that's what their words could be misinterpreted to mean. But how do we amend the Constitution? Article 5 sets forth the procedure, and originally, as Governor Morris and the Committee on Style had drafted it, it said that whenever or the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to the Constitution, and that those amendments should be valid to all intents and purposes when, as part of this Constitution, when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by Congress. In other words, what he is saying is that, as originally proposed, the Constitution could be amended by a two-thirds vote of each House of Congress. And then when that amendment was adopted, it would have to go to the states, and three-fourths of the states would have to ratify those amendments. And they would ratify them in one of two ways which Congress would designate. One would be by state ratifying conventions. The other 
would be by state legislatures. Anyway, that's the way we have ratified the Constitution. I should say 27 times because we've adopted 27 amendments, but actually the first 10 were all adopted pretty much together, and so we have those first 10, and then 17 that were adopted thereafter. We did that by two-thirds of Congress approving them, and then being ratified by three-fourths of the states. It's been noted that as you look to the amendments to the Constitution, the first 10 amendments limit the power of the federal government, prohibit the federal government from restricting free speech and things like that, prohibit the federal government from restricting firearms, from quartering troops, from unreasonable search and seizure, various other things like this. The remaining 17 amendments largely expand the power of the federal government. The income tax, the 13th Amendment concerning the right to, to be free from involuntary servitude, the 14th, life, liberty, or property, and equal protection, the 15th, right to vote, 19th, and so on. All of these have to do with expanding the power of government. And each of them says, most of them, that is, say at the close, that Congress may enforce this amendment by appropriate legislation. So these are grants of power to the federal government. But we need to remember that there is another means that the framers considered as to how to interpret the how to amend the Constitution. And in the last several days of the convention, several delegates asked the question, well, suppose that the people wanted a constitutional amendment, or maybe the state legislatures want a constitutional amendment, but Congress isn't willing to propose that amendment. Shouldn't there be another route? And so at the very last, they hastily drafted a provision and included it as part of Article 5, and that is the constitutional convention route of amending the Constitution. Article 5, as we're looking at it again, it goes on to say, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, Congress shall call a convention for proposing amendments, and then like an amendment proposed by Congress, it goes to three-fourths of the states for ratification. Well, we are experiencing quite a few calls for a constitutional convention today. And when we look to those various convention calls, exactly how many convention calls there are is very difficult to say. There is an organization called the Convention of States, or Conference of States, that says that 19 states have called for a convention. And that's following the resolution that they had proposed, which would call for a convention for these purposes, limiting the jurisdiction of government, restricting debt, and term limits. Now, the Western Journal, which is a conservative online journal, says that 17 states have approved calls for a constitutional convention. Other sources listed as high as 
28 states. Now, why should this be so hard to count the number of states that have called for a convention? Part of the reason it's so difficult is that when you look to these states, you have some states that have called for a convention to restrict the power to engage in debt, others for charm limits, still others for limiting jurisdiction of government, still others for other reasons. Do we count all these together? Do all of these calls have to be for the same purpose? If one state has called for a, let's say, say if 17 states called for a convention to consider a balanced budget amendment, and then 17 other states have called for a convention to consider term limits on office holders, do we put those together to get 34? Or in counting 34, do we have to have all 34 be for the same purpose? Now, the Convention of States organization, I'd have to say, has made a number of statements in this area that are inaccurate. Originally, they said that the convention has to be limited to a single issue and that the calls could be limited to that single issue. Now they're saying, no, it could be multiple issues. And so they changed their minds apparently on this issue. But also there's another factor here and that's the several states have rescinded their previous calls for a convention among those Alabama and Louisiana and Florida. Nevada, well, both houses of Nevada called for a convention and then the lower house, the House of Representatives, purged that resolution calling for a convention. So does that mean that the convention call has been rescinded in Nevada because no longer do two houses call for it? Or does the other house have to concur in purging it first? We don't know. There are all sorts of questions like this, and many of those advocating convention today are trying to say that once a state is called for a convention, it cannot rescind that call, all of which seems to me to be unfair. I would say myself that if we're going to take that position, that if a state cannot rescind its call for a convention, then I would say that if a state has defeated a call for a convention, the state can't rescind that defeat, and then then call for it in a resolution in the coming year. Interestingly enough, and I would say that this portion of the Constitution, having been added fairly late, you know, the last several days of the session, maybe it would be okay if they had been more specific about how these calls had to be worded, whether states could rescind, whether it had to be a certain number of states calling for a convention for the same issue, whether the states had to call for a convention within a certain time period, like within 10 years, so that we don't have to consider calls for a convention that maybe were made 100 years ago and so on. All of these are questions that still need to be answered. But if it comes to Congress and somebody tries to argue to Congress today that the necessary 34 states have called for a convention if you consider all these various calls, what is Congress going to do? Is Congress going to put all these together and say, yes, we have 34? Are they going to say, no, they don't all agree on 
the purpose of the call. And so until we have 34 that call for the same purpose, we will not consider it. Or what will they do? Or will this matter go to the court? Now, normally, this sounds like the kind of question that a court would have to resolve. How you decide how many states have called for a convention, whether the calls have to agree and so on. Normally, you think that would be for the court to decide. But we have in constitutional law a doctrine that is called the political question doctrine. What is that political question? Well, on the face, it might seem to be saying that the court will not decide political questions. But the fact is, of course, the court decides political questions all the time. What it means is he will not decide a question if that question has been more properly reserved by the Constitution to another branch of government. That's one explanation. Another would be if it lacks judicially manageable standards, that is, it's something that a court can't really have the expertise to deal with. Or a third explanation is whether it could embarrass the United States in its dealings with foreign nations. We use the political question doctrine, or that is, some members of the court use this political question doctrine in a case back in the 1980s. Goldwater versus Carter was the case, and the case involved Carter rescinding our treaty with Taiwan and recognizing communist China. Goldwater and a number of other senators said, you can't do that because we have entered into a treaty with Taiwan and you are rescinding that, that treaty, which you do not have the power to do. Well, the Supreme Court, for various reasons, different judges decided for various reasons not to take Senator Goldwater's challenge, but several of them said it would embarrass the United States in its dealings with foreign nations. For example, if President Carter had entered into diplomatic relations with China, then all of a sudden the court says, no, you can't do that. That would embarrass us with foreign nations. Well, the argument could be made here that the same would be true in regard to the political question doctrine with a conference or convention of the states. That as to whether or not 34 states have called for a convention, that when Article 5 says that upon application of two-thirds of the states, Congress shall call a convention, the court could possibly say that the Constitution thereby reserved to the Congress the authority to decide whether or not 34 states have made that call. They could possibly say that. If they did, I'm sure that would be challenged in court, and what the court would do, we don't know. Now, the dangers of a constitutional convention, I think, are very obvious. And one of those dangers is that we have no idea how that convention would be conducted. Mark Meckler and others with the Conference of States are arguing that the states call for a convention, and so the states can limit the convention, the states can set the rules for the convention. That simply is not true. If you read Article 5, it doesn't say the states will call a convention. 
It says the states will apply for a convention, and then Congress calls the convention. That means Congress, acting under its necessary and proper powers, will determine the rules for the convention. Although even there, there's no guarantee that the conference would follow the rules. Not only that, but could a state even limit what its own delegation to the conference would do? Could a state, in calling for a convention, say, our delegates from the state of Alabama are specifically limited? They will consider only a balanced budget amendment and no others? Can they hold their delegates to that? There's no guarantee of that. In fact, we don't even know whether the states will be sending delegates. It may be that Congress will choose the delegates to this convention. Anyway, with all of these things, I think the convention could be very dangerous. There is no guarantee that it could be limited, even to these several topics, vague as they are, that the Convention of States is proposing. And if at the convention, once these topics have been exhausted, if at the end of that, Another delegate says, well, I think we ought to consider an equal rights amendment. Another says, I think we should consider an amendment that extends the right to vote to everyone, regardless of whether they're citizens or not, and including four-year-olds in the right to vote. And another says, well, last night, several of us were down in the tavern in the basement of the hotel, and we took out a napkin and drafted a whole new constitution that we'd like us to consider. There is no limit on what this convention could do. They say, well, there's one limit, and that's that you still have this restriction that it has to be approved by three-fourths of the states. And therefore, 13 conservative states could block any liberal amendment. Well, maybe. By the same token, 13 liberal states could block any conservative amendment, which means the whole thing would probably be nothing but a waste of time, which I would say would be the best possible outcome. But remember the first convention, the one of 1787? There, they disregarded the rules for ratification. The Articles of the Confederation said an amendment becomes effective when ratified by all 13 states, and they disregarded that and set a whole new means of ratification by nine states. Now, you consider some of the things that people would be concerned about today. You think a, the Electoral College would survive a new convention? What about the right to keep and bear arms or many other rights that we consider to be very sacred and God-given and essential to a free society today? Again, I'm saying this whole thing could be dangerous, and one of the real mistakes, I think, that these Convention of States people are proposing here, one of their real mistakes is they assume that a convention like this would be run by constitutional conservatives. I see no guarantee of that. More likely to be run by media-orchestrated liberal types. I see it as a very dangerous thing. Constitutional Russian roulette of the best, constitutional suicide of the worst. It's dangerous. Welcome.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I really appreciate your take on the Convention of the States and an Article 5 uh, Constitutional Convention. I have a question for you, and that is, if the federal government right now is prone to ignore the Constitution as it's already written, how exactly would that change if we were to write some new rules into the Constitution via an Article 5 convention? That's a very good point. I saw a T-shirt for sale on the Internet here. Ironically, it was made in China, but they barely (laughs) replied to a constituency here. It says, the Constitution does not need to be rewritten. It needs to be reread. And you're right. I mean, they're ignoring the Constitution as it is right now. They're not following the Constitution as it is right now. So we think if we rewrite it, then they will follow it. There's no reason to think that at all. It's silly. But some of the amendments here, I'm not necessarily opposed to a balanced budget amendment, but I'm not sure it's going to accomplish too much either. I mean, I'm for a balanced budget, but consider we have something better right now, and that's that if you look through Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, It carefully limits the things the federal government can spend money for. If we would adhere to that, we would have much more than a balanced budget. We'd have a surplus. Or the other thing they're calling for, term limits. I have some reservations about term limits, and this is an issue conservatives are divided on. There was a Supreme Court decision, U.S. term limits, several decades ago, in which a state, it might have been Arkansas, had adopted term limits for its congressmen and senators, and the Supreme Court, with a five to four decision, struck it down as unconstitutional. They said that the Constitution, Article One, sets the qualifications for a senator as being a certain age, having been a resident for this many years, and so on. And that was intended to be an exhaustive list of the qualifications, and the states may not add to that list. Four justices dissented, and I would have to have agreed with the dissent. Nevertheless, I think term limits could be a dangerous thing. I don't so much say a dangerous thing as, let's just say an undesirable thing. The reason I say this is Oh, I could name a lot of people there that have been there a long time that I'd love to get rid of, like Nancy Pelosi. But I think of a lot of very good members of Congress that I want to keep. Senator Chuck Grassley, for example, and many others. And it seems to me like we already have term limits. The term limits are that whenever the voters decide that a congressman or senator has had enough terms, they can vote him out. Seems to me maybe that's the way it ought to be. And I tend to think that Congress will function best when it is composed of a mixture of new people with new ideas and experienced old hands that know the wisdom of the ages. And I think a mixture of these together makes Congress and state legislatures as well function best. So I'm personally opposed to term limits, although I think that if a state wants to adopt term limits for its its own congressmen and senators, I think they should be allowed to do so. I think that term limits decision was wrong, but 
Nevertheless, I personally think term limits are not a good idea. One more reason I think they're not a good idea is that if Congress is composed entirely of new people, people without a lot of standing, a lot of stature, a lot of experience, they're going to be easily controlled. They'll be controlled by bureaucrats in the executive branch that specialize in those areas, or they'll be controlled by legislative staffers that have been in there year in, year out, working for one congressman right after another, and the congressman will be dependent upon them. Once again, I don't think it's a good idea, but see both sides on it. Okay. Did you want to pursue that further, Brian? Further questions? Just one observation, and that's based on, on what you have been describing. It sounds to me like the, the whatever um, deficiency there is that would cause people to want to uh, amend the Constitution, you know, to, to clarify and to rewrite, I really believe it's, uh, that we have, we have the tools there, the way that it's written right now, but the biggest deficiency that I see is, is in the people themselves. You know, why are we not voting out? politicians that, that are not representing our interests, but instead are, are representing their own. Um, you know, that, that seems to come back on us, you know, as far as the term limits thing. I, I just think, I wonder where we went astray and why we're not applying that strict adherence to the Constitution as it once may have been applied. In fact, for that matter, can I ask you, was the Constitution strictly observed? Was it strictly, you know, uh, it, what, did the people insist that their elected officials follow it? The first question, or let's take last question first. Yes, I think the Constitution was more strictly followed in the first century to century and a half of our nation's existence than it has been lately. I think that people thought that if something is unconstitutional, that means we can't do it, particularly in regard to spending. There was a bill in the 1790s, for example, that would provide for some relief to some people that were in desperate need of relief. James Madison, who was a member of Congress at the time, and who many call the father of the Constitution, opposed it. And he said, I cannot lay my finger on any provision of the Constitution that authorizes Congress to engage in charity. If the states wants to do so, that's another matter. If private organizations want to do so, that's another matter. He wasn't being uncharitable here. He was simply saying, Congress doesn't have the authority to do this. Grover Cleveland, who, of all of the Democrat presidents in the last 150 years or so, would be my favorite. A Cleveland Democrat was considered to be a conservative Democrat, but Grover Cleveland vetoed countless bills because, in his opinion, they went beyond the powers of the Constitution. So, yes, I think the, there was a time when people followed the Constitution much more strictly than they have recently. But you started your question out with another, and what was that again? I'm just wondering, you know, if the deficiency is in us more so than the Constitution itself. I, I know that the, the founders wisely left an amendment process there if things needed to be addressed, which, which it turns out they did. Uh, the slavery question, for instance, uh, uh, women's suffrage and so forth, those things could be addressed. But a lot of what I see is, is really, uh, it's delinquency on the part of the American people more so than the Constitution that, uh, that has people clamoring to change it, at least in my opinion. I think you're right on that. For one thing, it looks to me like people 
today don't have a great deal of political memory. R.J. Rushkin, he once said that the average person's political memory does not extend longer than 30 days, and I'd say he's probably being very optimistic of that. Maybe 7 to 14 days is closer, but we have no recollection of the past, and as a result, very often we think only whether a particular bill represents our immediate self-interest rather than whether it's constitutional or what its long-range ramifications should be. And here's one thing, I'm getting a little astray on a couple of things here, but line item veto has been an interesting issue. And I'm bringing this up in connection with some of these other things, but the line item veto, that is, should the president have the authority to veto an entire, or, or to, if a bill comes before him, should he have the authority to just veto a couple of lines in the bill and sign the rest of the bill into effect? Or must he, as the current system provides, either sign the bill into effect in its entirety or veto the bill in its entirety? The line item veto, which many conservatives support, would say that he could line out certain parts of the bill and leave the rest intact and sign it. Part of the problem with that, as I see it, is that a lot of those things that would be lined out, a lot of this is pork barrel, frankly, you know, where one senator says, I'll vote for the bill if you include this subsidy for building a dam in my district and so on like this. And that goes on a lot, but that's how legislation gets passed and it'd be harder to reach consensus in Congress if every senator who proposes I'll vote for this bill if you include something, if he knows that very likely it's just going to be lined out. And the president could line out portions of a bill that would be very different, or that would make the bill very different from the sense in which it was passed. And so I see it as being something dangerous. And I remember one platform committee that I sat in back in the 80s, at which time Ronald Reagan was president. And the, the line item veto, veto came up and I said, would you want John F. Kennedy or Jimmy Carter or somebody like that to have this line item veto? And the person who proposed it, no, I think I'd prefer that it be only this president. That's not the way law works, nor is the way court decisions work. And any time you're considering a bill like this that authorizes the president or somebody else to do something, you've got to consider how would you feel if somebody with a very different persuasion were in office? Would you want that person to have this power? And if the answer is no, then maybe you ought to reconsider whether that ought to be part of the law or not. Anyway, so those are just a few considerations, but you know, as to whether or not the problem is the people, yes, I do think that we had a more far-sighted population at one time than we have today. With public education, I think we have dumbed down people a great deal to where they don't think nearly as much in terms of principle as, as they used to think. And I think that's a dangerous thing. So. 
somebody, it might have been Victor Hugo, I shouldn't say that because I'm not positive, somebody once said that people basically get the kind of government they deserve. And it's not so much a matter of the form of government, it's the people you have running at the matters. Well, form and structure are important too, but they are a little match for people that are determined to disregard. And yes, I do think we're facing that problem here today. Well, Brian, in the closing moments here, I would like to go into a little of what the Supreme Court has done in this last term. It's been a remarkable term, one of the most memorable terms in history, certainly in our lifetime, it has been the term in which there has been more decisions that have favored conservatives than any time before. Some say this court has an agenda. I would say it's the exact opposite. This court does not have an agenda. Rather, what we are seeing is a court that is getting back to the plain meaning of the Constitution. The Dobbs versus Jackson decision, for example, where the Supreme Court simply said in this case, the Constitution does not guarantee a right to an abortion. Therefore, the issue rests with the states. That's getting back to the Constitution itself. The right to keep and bear arms. And as the Supreme Court invalidated a New York law that in effect gave local officials the right to require open carry or concealed carry permits, but only if a person shows good cause as to whether they should be allowed to carry a weapon, but basically said that there are no criteria for this. In other words, each local law enforcement official could make his own decision as to whether he thought this person had good cause or not. And the sheriff that doesn't believe anybody ought to be carrying guns could turn down all permits and somebody who felt the opposite could grant all permits. Well, the Supreme Court said that that violates the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment says there is a right to keep and bear arms. And they went through a lengthy history on this, but I think it really goes back to the language itself. Keep means people have a right to own guns. Doesn't mean that they have a right to access to a firearm when they report for guard duty at the local armory and then they stack arms there when they leave. They have a right to keep their guns. Bear means they have the right to carry them, not just in their own homes, obviously, but anywhere. And so the very language of the Second Amendment itself dictated that result. This isn't simply something that those in government can grant or deny as they see fit. This is a right that is guaranteed by the is guaranteed by God, but it is protected by the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, New York has a new law that seems to circumvent this whole thing and would, if adopted, put similar restrictions in place, some pretty severe license fees and so on that would make gun ownership unaffordable for many. Other requirements, like you have to go through an extensive training period and things like this in order to be entitled to exercise your right to keep and bear arms. Now that I can see the reasons for. 
And I am for marksmanship training. I'm for firearm safety training. I'm for those things. But we don't require that a person take a course in public speaking before they're allowed to exercise their right of free speech. We don't require that a person be required to take a course in journalism before he's allowed to exercise his right to free press. So should we require that a person take a course in firearms before he's allowed his right to keep and bear arms when that is a right guaranteed by the Constitution itself through the Second Amendment? Anyway, there are restrictions, for example, saying that you can't carry firearms, this is in this proposed New York law, that you can't carry firearms in certain places, such as in a church. Well, there, I think there is a religious liberty violation. If in my church, I want to say that my church believes in the right to keep and bear arms, and we want people to carry arms in our church, I don't think the government has a right to say no, People can't bear arms in your church, even if your church wants them to. Likewise, business establishments and so on. Now, we had a proposal in Alabama a couple of years ago. The proposal was that, that the right to keep and bear arms would be a protected right, in, and you had the right to carry firearms in business establishments and churches and other places like this. Frankly, I was opposed to this. I oppose this because I support the right of a church or the right of a business to make its own policy in this area. If a church happens to hold pacifist convictions and if a church wants to say no firearms in our church, I think that should be their right. I probably don't want to go to that church, but I respect their right to restrict firearms. Likewise, if the owner of a business wants to say, no firearms in my business, I think he has that right. I may not patronize his establishment, but I think he has that right. Anyway, point of the matter is, I think this New York bill, as it's proposed, raises some of the same constitutional issues as the one that the Supreme Court just struck down in this last term as unconstitutional. And probably this means there's going to be another Supreme Court case, which means for us here at the Foundation for Moral Law, this means a, another opportunity to file an amicus brief in support of this God-given constitutional right to keep and bear arms. Now, some are going to say, you can't really put the right to keep and bear arms on the same level as the right to free speech or free press or free exercise of religion. I would argue that the right to keep and bear arms is just as basic as those. Because the right to keep and bear arms is basically the right to self-defense. And even John, or Thomas Hobbes insisted that the right to self-defense is a basic law of nature. And that being the case, it can be restricted only when there is a compelling interest that cannot be achieved by less restrictive means like any other fundamental right. And you look further at the nature of this right to keep and bear arms. There are those who said that the right to keep and bear arms is really a protection of all other rights. Joseph Story, the Supreme Court Justice and also Harvard Law Professor in the 1830s, who 
wrote commentaries on the Constitution, many call that the leading exposition of the Constitution from the 1800s, he said the right to keep and bear arms is the outer palladium of liberty. What he meant by that, a palladium, let's say if you have a fort, you have the big walls here and the big building inside, then you have these outer walls on the outside of the fort. That's the palladium, the outer wall. The Second Amendment guarantee of the right to keep and bear arms is the outer palladium of liberty. It's the outer protection of the other rights. Some say that is the right that makes the enjoyment of all other rights possible. One put it this way, that if you have, if I have a choice between the right of free speech or the right to keep and bear arms, I will choose the right to keep and bear arms. And then I can say whatever I want because I have a gun. <laughs> and but point is the framers thought of the right to keep and bear arms as a means by which the populace and the states protect themselves against federal tyranny, which sounds radical today, but Hamilton makes that very clear in the Federalist Papers, as does Madison. And I don't think you would say that Hamilton and Madison were wild-eyed radicals. If Thomas Paine had said that, you might say, well, that's radical. But I don't think you'd attribute the same thing to Hamilton and Madison. Point of the matter is, the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right. The court in the last several decades with the Heller decision, the McDonald decision, now this most recent decision is finally recognizing this. And we must never lose sight of that, regardless of who keeps the majority on the Supreme Court. It is certainly my hope that these precedents that we've established in this area will be honored for all time. So I have to ask, Colonel, what do you see in the uh, in the next Supreme Court session? I know uh, the first Monday in October is quite a ways off, but um, we have a new justice. There, uh, there's obviously still some some uh, smarting feelings over some of the the rulings that came down. Is there anything that you look to that that's going to be particularly contested, or that might be expected to be contested in the upcoming term? We'll probably be able to answer that better in just a few months when we see what cases the Supreme Court grants certiorari on it. That is, they read a hearing, which cases they don't. There is one case that we at the foundation just filed an amicus brief on. It involves a, the, a lawsuit against President Biden. And in the lawsuit, it is called the control group filing the lawsuit. And it concerns this issue of the right to have religious objections to vaccination. And the control group is saying that not only do we have this right, but it is essential in the future of science that we be allowed to continue to exercise this right. Because in the future, if you're going to be measuring in the future the effectiveness of vaccines, measure to what extent they are effective or to what extent they may have side effects, you have to have a control group, that is those who are not vaccinated, that you compare them to. And without that control group, if you force everybody to be vaccinated, there is no control group. You can do no science on the effectiveness or the bad side effects of vaccines. And so this is a case that is in a petition for cert before the Supreme Court 
we in the foundation have already filed a suit or a amicus brief supporting this, this lawsuit, and we'll see what happens there. We'll certainly see a number of issues we have right now going on in the Senate, a proposal to limit the right to, to vote or to, to spread the right to vote to include everyone. We have also the right to make abortion a nationwide right, quite a few others. These will raise states' rights issues. So we'll just see what cases the court grants cert on and what they don't.